Italy, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Tonight, we have the liar's first ever lock-in. This isn't, alas, because the phoenix wants us to drink through the night, but because the doors are sealed, bolted, and most significantly, locked. And no one is quite sure where, or indeed what, the key is. Still, we do like a captive audience. We'll have five stories on the theme of lock and key to keep, help you while away the hours. Three in the first half, then an interval where you can try to bribe your way out. Credit cards are accepted. Before we return with the infamous Lively book quiz. <laughs> and then we unlock two more stories before the end of the night. Please make sure that all your mobile phones are not only locked, they're also off or silent. We wouldn't want you calling for help, would we? And so, the first story of the evening will be The Fantastic Fritz by Nigel Robinson, reread by Greg Page. Having completed a creative writing course with the Open University, Nigel Robinson's main ambition is to play blues guitar at Ronnie Scott's. He lives in South London and is in the belief that all men should experience a little misery in their lives. He is a Millwall season ticket holder. Aged six, Greg Page was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Someone put a tea towel on his head, and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He has no idea what he's done with his keys. Greg! The Fantastic Fritz by Nigel Robinson. When I was a young man, I had arms as thick as a man's legs. My hands, uh, they were like uh, the cream bucket. Yes? They called me the Prince von Flug, the Prince of Flight. I would tumble through the air without the safety net, but without fear. Nothing could harm me. I could defy gravity, tumble like a spinning leaf. Outside the Blue Cat Club, even on the rainy night, they would queue, their rice marks clutched in their hands, Berlin's pretty ones, the bright young things, squirming with the excitement of it all. From my perch, high above, I would watch them as they sat at the tables with their whiskey and their schnapps, as they flattered and flirted with each other over the table-to-table telephone system. But when I flew, I had their attention. Their upturned faces, looking like bowls of winter soup as their mouths opened in gasps of wonder. And in that heartbeat of a second, when everything stopped, when I would be frozen in midair, I knew what they would be thinking. Would my outstretched hand reach the trapeze? that was already singing away from me? Or would it all be too much? 
will I come hurtling down to earth right in front of them. Their hands would clamp over these open mouths in readiness for the shock, the dreadful noise as my body hit the stage. This was what they'd come for, to have their breath taken from them, to be thrilled to the point of terror by the Prince of Flight. And when my fingers wrapped around the swimming bar, when they saw I was to survive at least for the moment, the cries that rose from their throats would be tinged with disappointment. But their roars of bravo and thundering hand clapping made it easy to forgive. After all, isn't the desire to witness tragedy just another human emotion? But all things change. Soon the eyes of the pretty ones became cold, bored with the spectacle. They would catcall, shout out obscenities at my heroic efforts to entertain while they waited for the jazz band to appear. It will not do, Herr Metalman. Meyer, the owner of the blue cat, always bulging from his suit, always complaining of his bad stomach, always wiping the sweat from his toad-like face. He told me as he puffed on his ridiculous cigar that aerial daredevilry was kaput. The old hat, he said. People want to see more show. Make more show. And so I became the fantastic Fritz, escapologist extraordinaire. My notice in the busy bee brought forth many beautiful young women struck by the romance, by the bright lights, knowing city girls who knew too much, girls who wanted escape from their listless, dull office lives, lump and farm girls with dirty hands, but none were suitable for the position of my assistant. These young women, I could tell by their faces, they would not be able to produce the ersatz expression of fear when the time came. Their screams of panic would be too genuine. They would be useless to me. Then, one afternoon, when I had almost given up hope, quietly waiting for me in my dressing room, Charlotte. My Lotta. My Lotta. A blonde of such pug-faced beauty, always the only woman I had met to make my heart go bump. She gave me a feeling inside, as if I flown over the switchback ride, as if I were hungry but could never eat. Trust me, Fräulein Weissen, your life will be safe in my hands. And I could tell, straight away by the merriment in her deep brown eyes, that she knew all this was to be a game. Invented by me, Fritz Mettelmann, the Wheel of Death grew crowds from all over Germany. Charlotte bound hand and foot to a golden tilted table. Travelling upwards towards her, between her legs akimbo, the revolving silver disc of steel, so razor sharp it could easily have sliced away the hand of a man. And suspended by my feet, upside down, High above the audience, shackled in heavy chains and locks, my arms imprisoned in a straitjacket, me, the fantastic Fritz. As the music builds to a climax, 
I had three seconds in order to free myself and save her. I was such a success that people would barter, even fight each other for admission. Maya, with his big belly rocking on his heels, puffing on his cigar, would pat me on the shoulder. Wunderbar, Mekelman. Wunderbar. And Lotta would look at me and smile her quiet smile. Because she knew, like I knew, the fantastic fights was all fated. It was an illusion. My years as the Prince of Flight had given me a deep chest and broad shoulders, layered with much muscle. As the stagehands would imprison me in the straitjacket and wrap me in the chains, I would enlarge these muscles to their maximum. When hanging in the air above the fearful crowd, by relaxing these muscles again, I suddenly had much ease of movement. I was able to reclaim the keys I had hidden about my body, to secretly undo all the many locks and gain my freedom. My real talent was in the timing. Night after night I would save Lotta's life by only a hair's breadth, the wheel of death being only a millimeter from the spread-eagled black cloth of her stage costume undergarments. Sometimes women would faint in their seats. Sometimes men too would slump forward, the spectacle being too much for them. The headlines in the busy bee said I was the sensation of 1934. And then came the challenge. Zuber Krupp, engineers of banking vaults, steel safes, repositories for valuables, presented the Zuber Krupp Mark 10. The lock, they said, that nobody, not even the fantastic Fritz, could defeat. The busy bee called it the challenge of the century. But I knew it would be my downfall. This would expose me for the fraud that I was. But two days later, Lotta handed me the special, the one and only Zuba Krupp key. I sometimes wondered what my Lotta did. I wondered what enticements she had offered to some lonely Krupp employee to obtain the answer to my problem. <laughs> but she never said, and I never dared to ask. The illusion that I had overcome Krupp's finest mechanism gave me the greatest night of my life. My dressing room was filled with exciting, cheering people, newspaper reporters, dignitaries, stars of the stage and the moving pictures, local bureaucrats and their girlfriends. The champagne corks were popping up to the ceiling and everyone wanted to toast my health. Everyone wanted to have their photograph taken with me. Mayor was waving people out of the way with his cigar, coming toward me through the crowd, guiding at his side a bespectacled man in a brown uniform. Herr Mettelmann, may I introduce Herr Heinrich Himmler? Himmler. He used words like magnificent and thrilling as he shook my hand as a broken cross spotless on his sleeve. But he did not speak to Lotta did not even turn his head to look at her. It was as if she simply wasn't there. 
And I could see in his dead, stone-like eyes behind, behind the little round glasses that the white Bosch, no Juden signs that had started to appear in the windows of cafes, on the entrances to the parks, they were not going to disappear. They were not to be just a passing phase, like the hula hoop. I could see the future. I could feel it coming. So, within weeks of my triumph over the Zuba Krupp, Lotta and I arrived here in England, in Dover's pouring rain. We stood in line for hour after hour, our cardboard suitcases at our feet, every few minutes shuffling forward more little centimeters. When finally we entered the wooden hut marked immigration, the suited man behind the desk looked at me with distaste. He turned the pages of my papers over carefully, as if he didn't want to touch them, as if they might be diseased. Then, finding no fault, reluctantly stamped them and waved me aside. But as he gazed at Lotta, his face became hard. He leant back in his chair and regarded her along the length of his nose. He said, quite slowly, as if he were measuring out each syllable, that the British Empire had no room for the Yid. I wanted to laugh at the absurdity of his words. I wanted to laugh at the bowler hat hung on a hook behind his desk. But suddenly, I knew he was not joke-making and felt something cold move inside of me. As two young men took Lotta by the arms and moved her towards the door, she looked back over her shoulder, her eyes asking me, what is to be done, Fritz? What is to be done? But what was to be done? What did she want from me? What? Did she expect me to beat those young men to the floor? Did she think I could make her small, a, a little rag doll, that I could put her in my coat pocket and smuggle her into the country? You must understand. I could do nothing. Life had to go on, yes? It was easier, so much easier not to think about it. But the great British public, they had little taste for me, the aliens. They had little taste for the fantastic Fritz or the Prince of Flight. <laughs> so I learned to perform the three-card trick in the dark alleyway of Soho. <laughs> I juggled on street corners or enticed passers-by into seedy basement film clubs. Somehow, I survived. That was all a very long time ago. My arms, once as thick as a man's leg and how like withered vines. My big hands have become as, as weak as a child's and my shoulder, shoulders, my broad back, they are buckled, bent under the weight of my cowardice. I live alone in a small room with a gas fire that pops and hisses. Sometimes there is hot water, sometimes not. On Saturday afternoons you will see me in the public houses where for the price of a small drink I will entertain the tourists and the out-of-towners with my stories of defying death. I sometimes even produce the crumbling yellow photographs that I have kept in my purse for all these years. Until yesterday. 
Yesterday, I received a letter. A letter that has been lost for a lifetime, finally delivered. A letter from Maya. Maya, it's a clever one. Maya, who had somehow survived the horrors that Berlin was to become when so many had perished. Lotta had returned to the Blue Cat, where she worked as a waitress. Then one day, she simply did not show up. Sometime later, he heard a rumour that she'd been deported to one of the camps. No one knew what happened to her after that. So, for the first time in 60 years, I have packed the suitcase. The same cardboard suitcase, battered and falling apart, but with strapping, it will pass. In it, I have placed a few articles of clothing, heart pills, blood pressure pills, and pills to kill the pain in my aching joints. It is all an illusion. I know this. Like escaping the Zuberkrupp was an illusion, a trick. But this is a trick I wish to play on myself. I will go back to Berlin and I will delude myself. You, you understand the old man's need for this. To wipe clean the slate, to again stand up straight like the man I could have been. I must comfort myself with this daydream, with the imaginary scenes in my head. The fantastic Fritz saving his lotter for the very last. Thank you, Greg. Our second story of the evening will be The Consular Agent by Phil Berry, be read by Andrew Bagley. Phil is a novelist, medical writer, and practicing doctor. He's had short stories performed by fellow liars in London, Hong Kong, and Leeds. He's currently completing a book series for children called All the Pieces. Andrew worked for the council in the 70s, acted in the 80s, was in business in the 90s and noughties, and is now back to acting in the 2020s. He may return to the council for the 2020s. His most recent project was a German TV adaptation of a Rosamund Pilcher novel where he played an unsuitable date. Andrew, The Consular Agent, by Phil Berry. He was as young as you'd fear, The Consular Agent, but he was my main hope and I hid my disgust. I got in first. Before you start, I didn't do whatever they said I did. What do you think they are saying you did? Cheeky. I began to like him. Well, I have no idea. I'm at a total loss, I replied. Well, you don't look very worried. Well, I'm, I'm not, but because I'm innocent. Of what? Is that some kind of mind trick? Christ! No need to be rude, Mr. Woods. Sorry. And I was. No need to alienate him. No need to swear. I knew this was a mistake, one that would resolve itself shortly. Assuming you have committed no crime, we need to work out why you are here. Some of my questions may seem absurd, but... I have to ask them. Are you a spy for the secret services or industry? No. Are you politically active? 
books, pamphlets, blogs? No. Could your friends have arranged this as a, as a joke? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. You're sure? Yes, I'm sure. This is weird, I know, but have you ever signed up to one of those extreme life experience organisations? <laughs> you know, when you agree to let something crazy happen, but without any warning. Like that film? Yes, like that film. No. He paused now, out of ideas. Well, so what next? I asked. We wait. We wait for the charges. Well, how long does that take? Could be up to ten days. What? That, that, that's unreasonable. Yes, I know. You will have to get used to that. Things progress slowly here. Will, will they torture me? No, they won't. I can assure you of that. But they did. After three nights, I began to realise how much trouble I was in. There was no sense here, no logic, no clear causation, no strategy for escape. I was locked in. I am locked in. I would love it if you could read this, but there is no paper here. Only thought. If you could read this, you might decide to lift yourself from complacency and come for me into this humid country of undeserved punishment. But before leaving your happy life, you'll want to know, you know, what happened? How did he get here? What did he do wrong? There was nothing I did. Well, the smoking, perhaps. Too much salt. Perhaps a few too many binges, if you want to go hard on me. Nothing criminal. Like I told the consular agent, I do believe I am morally blameless. Forgive my artifice. I must have a framework in which to tell the story, and my brain is full of warmly remembered plots. Also, I need to access my sense of humour, which is like an old friend standing by me. He prods me when I'm down and pulls a face. He is annoying, just as I was annoying in the old days, when I could talk and joke, but at least he is alive. He spits in fate's face. It was he who transformed the fluorescent tubes above me into rhomboids of sunlight cast through the barred window. My sense of humour came up with the consular agent, the face of fate, the impotent messenger. But I like my junior diplomat for all his ethereality. He has done well, and I am glad that the service has not moved him on. I'm sure he'll climb the career ladder out of this banana republic in good time. But for me, right now... It's just fine having him pop in nearly every day. And I think he likes me a little. I no longer swear I hide my disappointment at news of the latest failed appeal or crushing interim judgment. He hands me messages from my family, but has not yet succeeded in getting one of them into my cell. Not even Julia, my closest connection. But that surprises me. It's been two years, and I would have thought the Foreign Office would have got its finger out by now and brought her over. But then again, perhaps her absence is 
confirmation of my guilt. What was I doing when they came for me? I believe I was sitting in a restaurant, neutral ground, waiting for her, my daughter, Julia. We hadn't seen each other for four years since her decision to emigrate to Australia. I didn't expect her to visit often, but such a time without a glimpse was, was hard to take. Then she rang, the, the breeziness of her tone erased all the hurt that had accumulated. The falling out was history now. She'd made a new life for herself, and the time had come to meet again. When you have children, you don't think this sort of thing can happen. But adults are harder to manage than children, and there you go. Estrangement. So, there I was, waiting. She is late. I feel the stirrings of annoyance. Late for, for, for this, for, for me. I take the menu for something to do, and the writing in the centre begins to swirl. The power leaves my arms. I, I groan, I slip off the chair. The doors fly open with a bang. They run towards me, bag me up, take me away. Why was I in this country? Oh, come on. Don't resist. Go with the story. It's all I have now. I do fantasise. My favourite is to imagine the consular agent coming into my cell, seemingly as usual, until, hesitating, he looks back, nods, and says... I have someone with me today. Oh, who? I asked, prepared to be unimpressed. Another sweaty local magistrate, itching for a wadge of damp banknotes in order to facilitate the next appeal. But the boyish diplomat smiles and says, A surprise, actually, Mr Woods. He has always insisted on this formality. I look expectantly into the shadow of the corridor beyond the door. I see a tan skirt, a slim calf, and then a feminine hand on the doorpost. It is Julia, of course. And in my fantasy, I cry. When the dream is over, I lay still, always still, and feel the tears evaporate off my cheeks. I cannot wipe them away. If there is any moisture left when the morning staff arrive, they will dab me, and one of them might say something like, Oh, bad dreams again, Julian. <sighs> Why the pretense? Why describe myself in terms of an innocent prisoner rather than an innocent victim? The result is the same. I am locked in. Even the doctors call it that. It could be worse. I've learnt plenty from their unguarded conversations at the end of my bed. It could be PBS, persistent vegetative state, in which case I would not even have the power to imagine. Some authorities contend that my condition is worse because I am aware of it all. The loss, the regret, the, the paralysis of everything but the eyelids, the absolute impotence. They say, the doctors, that spontaneous recovery does occur. It is very rare, but the way I imagine it, all it takes is a reconnection. 
All I need is for a bundle of nerve tendrils to grow back and touch across the area of brain damaged in the stroke. The way my fingers touched Julia's when we dug tunnels in sandpits, furiously scraping away and, until we met in the middle. The look of achievement in her eyes. Breakthrough, she would shout. <laughs> she didn't grow out of that until she was 12 or, or 13. She is the catalyst, I think. If she comes to this foreign country, the, the rush of joy, the enzymatic storm will spur those frail nerves on. She is the key. I hear the slam of distant doors, the creaking of hinges. Footsteps, multiple. They never let the consular agent approach on his own. He is guarded all the way to the door. They should trust him by now. Perhaps it is me they don't trust. Today, shall I relent? Shall I tell them that I really am a spy? That would be fun. I have to fill this space of endless months. One day, perhaps, if I recover, I will get all of this down on paper so that you can enjoy it. They may even read it out. Imagine that. And if you ever do hear it, you will know that she came back into my cell, demure and embarrassed in the shadow of the consular agent, before touching my inert hand and setting me free. Thank you, Andrew. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be Key Party by Sarah McKellister, read by Louisa Gunn. Sarah works full-time in student services at Edinburgh University, studies writing part-time with the OU, and spends the rest of the time sleeping, reading, or drinking coffee. She used to live in Dalston, but she's all right now. <laughs> Louisa is a Lies League regular. Her recent voiceover work includes The Vine in 1914, Strand on BBC Radio 2, Seducing Harry Enfield on a radio ad, guiding visitors around Stockholm's Moderna Museum, and giving instructions inside an MRI scanner. Louisa! Key Party by Sarah McAllister. <coughs> on Monday... Ez took them to the soft opening of a bar next to a public urinal in Dalston. Inevitably, post-ironically, perhaps even amusingly, it was called pissed. Toilet bars are so over, Ez explained to Amber over his pissed whiskey mist, in which floated novelty ice cubes the colour and shape of urinal cakes. There's one in Chelsea, for fuck's sake. At Pissed, you could watch through mirrored, soundproof glass as the patrons of the next-door pissoir, blithely unaware of having an audience, got their cocks out and put them to the purpose God intended. Maisie and her sort of semi-boyfriend Frankie thought it was hilarious and instantly started live-tweeting it. Hashtag lol, hashtag mental Monday and hashtag penis. The twist was that Pissed itself didn't have any toilets. So once the cocktails had percolated through the assembled hipsters, 
It was a matter of who broke first. It was Ez. Shifting uncomfortably from foot to foot, who hustled them out, claiming he'd booked a table at Bang Bang Chicken, the Chinese KFC fusion restaurant nearby. They'd all ended up sharing an Uber back to Frankie's place and listening to 90s house on his vintage tape deck until 4am. So, basically, a standard Monday. On Tuesday, Maisie knew a band who were pre-launching their EP at a semi-derelict Catford cinema. It's fucking amazing, she said. Like punch drunk meets hammer, and that's just a lift. <laughs> so they went. The band was shit, but the drugs were okay, and the old orchestra pit had been turned into a swimming pool before the developers got bored. So Amber and Ez pushed each other in like flirtatious seven-year-olds, and Frankie Instagrammed some sick snaps. Facebooking them later, Amber thought again that she and Ez made a pretty fantastic couple. In the three years since dropping out of art school, she guessed that Ez kind of liked her, but he'd never made a move, so who knows? Maybe he was afraid of rejection, but, well, knowing Ez, he just considered it profoundly uncool to actually ask her out. Pity. He was hot. And under all the bullshit, well, quite nice, too. He was probably hoping, hoping that they'd hook up through sheer proximity. And that's what usually happens, after all. Wednesday was Amber's ex-tutor's gallery opening, so she dragged the others along to scoff canapes and bitch about sculptures. They went clubbing after and crashed at Ezzy's at five. Thursday started out with the traditional Brick Lane cocktail and curry crawl and blanked out around 10pm near Old Gate. She'd woken up at seven, not in, but under her bed. <laughs> On Friday afternoon, Ez WhatsApp them all saying his homie, Duncan, knew a girl who used to be a dominatrix. Or maybe was a performance artist who pretended to be a dominatrix. But anyway, she was holding a lock and key party and they had to go. Amber immediately googled key party and found this example of proper usage on Urban Dictionary. Last night, I got to take Jerry's wife, Sue, home from the key party for the first time. She gave me a better blowjob than my own wife, Jan, but I love Jan more than anything, especially since she likes to attend the key parties with me. Jan went home with Bill and said she liked how large his penis was, but that I still make better love to her than any of her other partners. <laughs> They met at Moonshine, a pop-up shanty bar above a vegan shoe shop. <laughs> but Maisie didn't seem too keen. A key party, she snorted. Like in the 70s? The guys tossed their Ford Escort keys in a bowl, the girls picked one to go home with. What is this, a good life? <laughs> I wondered if Maisie had ever watched an episode of The Good Life, <laughs> or just seen it referenced on an I Love the 1970s countdown, because... She was pretty sure Barbara and Margot had never actually husband-swapped. Maybe the idea wasn't such a thrill when you were in an open-plan semi-relationship, especially with a man-tart like Frankie, but what the fuck, it was a party and it was Friday. What else were they going to do? Stay home and read a book? Ez rolled his eyes and said, Sweets, 
It's not a key party, it's a lock and key party. Totally different. <laughs> totally different how? Maisie asked, glitter-rimmed eyes narrowed. <laughs> Amber Cattellez had no idea what a lock and key party involved, but Frankie was clearly keen. Come on, Maze, it'll be sexy or kitsch at least. Not that pissed place, but with less... Pissy, probably. <laughs> and after another round of Alabama slammers, they all agreed to go. It turned out, when they got there at an embarrassingly early 11pm, that locks were attached to the girls and keys got handed out to all the boys. The twist was <coughs> only five of the keys worked in five of the locks. The rest were duds. Those keys also unlocked one of the five bedrooms which were fitted with HD baby monitors for the viewing pleasure of the losers. <laughs> Their dominatrix, artist, whatever, had really thought it through. Ooh, crooned Frankie as he was handled, handed his key. Retrosexual politics and Freudian symbolism, I love it. <laughs> the key guy, Duncan, didn't even crack a smile. Maybe the dominatrix had said not to. As Amber examined the shiny brass Yale pendant hanging around her neck, she couldn't help hoping her lock was a dud. Drinking beer and laughing at mismatched couples in Epley shagging reminded her of happy teenage years spent in Maisie's bedroom watching Big Brother. <laughs> Maisie sashayed up to her, shimmering, shimmying the heavy chain around her slim hips. How comes mine's round your, my neck and you get to wear yours as a belt? Amber said crossly. Her chain was starting to shave, chafe already. Maybe she was allergic to nickel. Maisie grinned. I'll slip the lock, bitch, 20 quid, she said. I can wriggle out any time I want and join the real party. She nodded at the bank of spectators who were cheering the first couple to click. Two indistinct figures getting, it, getting down to it in Fisher-Price Technicolor. Also, this way I can check out what Frankie's up to. Amber nodded. Smart, she conceded. But her heart wasn't really in it. Like everyone else, she knew she'd had so many random, meaningless sexual encounters in her short life that the prospect of another one, even with a medium-hot guy, was kind of... meh. <laughs> she was tired of that shit. In fact, she was just plain tired. This week had really taken it out of her. Jesus! Was she getting... old? <laughs> she looked around the room, checking out the party goers. Maybe 24 was old. In the corner, Ez was arguing intently with Duncan over his bowl of keys. Probably hadn't got the brand he wanted. Was there such a thing as a trendy key? She wandered into the kitchen, cracked a Red Bull and winced. Everything still tasted like ticker. Her tongue was fucked from last night. Too much curry and too little sleep. The idea seemed to be that everyone mingled as usual. Keys trying locks and vice versa, until the five lucky couples found each other. Amber drifted through several conversations about ketamine, 80s cartoons, BDSM, U-porn, Jeremy Corbyn, and how painfully over Hackney was, before ending up next to Ez, whose key had just been firmly ejected by the lock of a statuesque Asian girl. Better luck next time, said Amber, flicking her still-locked necklace. Ez shrugged. Guess it wasn't meant to be. Amber lifted an eyebrow. That 
Oh, you should have brought some WD-40. Oh, stiffness isn't the problem, Ez assured her, straight-faced. It's just the wrong fit. Here, try it. He lifted the key around his neck and slipped it smoothly into her lock by way of demonstration. The key turned with a slick click, and Amber's padlock opened wide. Immediately, they were surrounded by a patter of applause. Behind them, a whip cracked triumphantly. And that's the last pep, cried their hostess, who Amber felt was a bit bossy, even for a dominatrix. <laughs> now, you lucky pups, find a bedroom and get fucking. Awesome, said Ayers laconically. You coming, Anne? Amber stared at him. Ayers? Uh, she said, wondering if this was fate or what. It would make a great how-we-got-together story, but something bothered her. It all seemed a bit too easy. Yeah, I guess, but you think it's weird? He looked suddenly wary. What? I mean, won't it be weird, you know, you and me? His face relaxed into, relaxed into a wide, smug grin. Chill, he said. I'm pretty good at this. They found the last bedroom, kissed a bit, okay, he was pretty good, and stripped down to their underwear. It was kind of hot, but definitely weird, and not just because someone was audibly wanking outside the keyhole. <laughs> no, something else was nagging at Amber, and she was pretty sure it was the fact that she'd seen Ez so deep in conversation with Duncan as he was handing out the keys and that Maisie had bribed the lock girl. Because what if their random pairing wasn't random at all? What if Ayres, instead of asking her out like an actual person, had decided he was too cool for that, and instead slipped Duncan a note for the key to Amber's lock? He'd probably think he was being clever and romantic, whereas in fact it was bullshit. Because if Ayres didn't have the balls to ask her to her face and deal with the possibility of a not he definitely didn't deserve access to her pants. Yeah, he loved to pretend he didn't really care about anything, but she'd like to see him lose his cool for once. She put her hands on Ezzy's shoulders, stifling a yawn. That Red Bull wasn't working. How much sleep had she had this week? Ten hours? Twelve? God, that bed looked inviting. <laughs> All crisp white sheets and chubby pillows. Maybe the dominatrix got her clients to do the rooms dressed up like French maids. Amber forced herself to focus. She took his key and toyed with it, and then lifted the chain over his head and slipped the Yale back into her necklock, twiddling it suggestively. Hesbane, she cooed. This is hot, and more, but it's kind of vanilla, yeah? Let's give them a real show. Why don't you... Run out there and grab us a few accessories. He raised a lazy eyebrow, intrigued. Accessories? Sure. Why like what? She shrugged. Simple stuff. A funnel. Straws. Maybe a butt plug. Or one of those wine stoppers if they've all gone. Lube, obviously. Obviously, he nodded, pulling his skinny jeans on hastily. God! 
Was he actually getting excited about something? Was that what it took? Oh, she added as he slammed the door open, producing a thud and a stifled cry from the other side. Chili powder and a dildo! (laughs) He gulped, nodded and almost ran off. She waited a minute and then walked over and locked the door from the inside with his key. Then she unplugged the baby monitor from the wall and jumped between the cool, smooth sheets. The bed really was amazingly comfy. She wondered how long it would take Ez to gather all that crap and come back to find he was locked out. He'd be pissed off, but at least he'd realise that if he wanted to hook up with her, he'd have to try a little harder. Even if it was sheer luck they'd been paired, it wouldn't kill him to have a challenge for a change. She closed her aching eyes, drifting on crisp clouds of Egyptian cotton. Was she imagining a muffled thumping? A plaintive, let me in! (laughs) She snuggled deeper. Maybe she'd open the door. Maybe not. She'd have to sleep on it. Thank you, Louisa. And so, the penultimate story of the evening will be Lightfingers Morgan by Charles Whiting, read by Will Goodman. Charles is a journalist who spends his days writing about pubs and bars. In the evening, he enjoys visiting pubs and bars in between scribbling, doodling and devising outlandish holidays. Will is the only man to make multiple adventure of kids' cartoon fame, Mr. Ben, jealous. Internet entrepreneur, radio DJ, beauty and the geek star, and etiquette coach to Britain's next top models. Will regularly performs on the London circuit and is currently writing a musical. Will. Light Fingers Morgan by Charles Whitten. Open the damn door so we can get out of here, growled Carter, his knuckles white around the haft of his hatchet. Morgan's pick skittered in the lock as he flinched at the sailor's voice. Its normal undertones, that constantly threatened ferocious physical violence, were now laced with genuine terror. The kind that made men do foolish things. Morgan could quite understand, of course. He was absolutely terrified himself. This wasn't what he'd been promised by that condescending weasel Barrington back in the prison at Fort Plymouth. If he'd known what this ludicrous enterprise entailed, he'd happily have accepted the noose Judge Horn had sworn he'd wear at his burglary trial. Instead, the diminutive Welshman had listened to Barrington's lunatic scheme to bust him out of prison, smuggle him onto the aptly named ship Sea Witch, and raid the Spanish outpost of Santa Teresa. He'd endured a week of cramped conditions on board the privateer sloop, 
working all hours and fearing for his life every time a Caribbean squall turned the water into a boiling, hissing explosion. Even when they'd arrived at the target and the cover of darkness, the plan had been botched. Henderson and Cat had been charged with smuggling Morgan into the chambers of Don Carlos, the butcher of Los Frias, while the rest of the crew created a diversion. Instead, those two fools had fired their pistols at the first conquistador they saw, blowing any cover that might have existed, and the rest of the crew had taken it as a signal to launch a full-scale assault on the fortress's walls. So now here he was in a burning building trying to spring one of the most famously intricate locks this side of the Atlantic before the garrison of Santa Teresa broke through and captured him for Don Carlos to boil alive. Oh, that noose was looking mighty inviting right now. He was pretty sure that he was at least halfway through the lock so far. He reckoned he would have been done by now if his hands didn't keep shaking. His picks were constantly losing their place and slipping out of the cogs. He'd had to start from scratch three times already. What in God's name is taking so long? Said Carter, louder and more desperate this time. Behind the huge Devonshire sailor, the other man, Henderson, was staring out of the shattered window into the burning courtyard below. Morgan could hear maddened screams, the clash of steel and the crack of musket fire down there, but he tried to force it out of his mind. What he needed now was peace, a calm head. He took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and tried to picture the inner workings of the lock in the back of his brain. Nothing else existed, he told himself. Not the acrid stench of gunpowder, smoke and blood. Not the sweat soaking his undershirt and streaming down his lean, grubby face. And certainly not the angry Spanish voices behind the heavy oaken door. Not even Henderson and Carter frantically looping coils of rope out of the window in readiness for their escape. As the sounds became muted in Morgan's ears, a calm overcame him. Not the calm of gently rolling waves or of a summer's breeze. This was a mechanical calm. His brain clicked in a rhythm that only his fingers understood, sending beats and ticks down his arms beyond his fingertips. The picks were part of his body, poking inside the lock as though he was touching the mechanisms with his own skin. Behind his eyes, the inner workings of the safe appeared, the intricacies of every cog and gear and switch. Morgan pressed forward with his left pick, searching for a link that he could lift out of the way. The metal was hard and unyielding, but he was a methodical cracksman, working his way up and across the surface until he could find the point of entry. 
Something rippled past the tip of the pick, and Morgan froze. That was it. The next link. Painfully slowly, he retraced his steps and found the slit. He gathered his nerve. What's taking so long? roared Carter in Morgan's ear, the force of his voice almost enough to cause the lockpick to drop his tools. You! Morgan hissed back, his frustration briefly overwhelming his fear. You are what is taking me so long. Back off! The big man took a step back, confusion writ large in his brutish eyes. He tugged at his blonde moustaches and ran a meaty hand through his thinning hair before the malicious glint returned and his brow furrowed nastily. You better watch your tongue, light fingers, he growled, or I'll be ripping it out. Morgan shrugged and returned to his work. Thankfully, he was quickly able to retrace his steps, find the link and lift it. The mechanism was slightly stiff, the salt air of the Caribbean no doubt causing rust. But Morgan was experienced enough to know how much force to use. It folded back with a satisfying snap. Morgan moved his left pick forward once more, probing for the opening that he sensed was there, that he knew was there. With the tenderness of a lover, he inserted the tip of the pick into a groove and gently lifted it. A smile danced across his face as he heard the pieces click apart and open the way for the final masterstroke. His right pick eased through the newly formed gap, sniffing for the lever that would end the lock's resistance. It was there somewhere, waiting to be found, calling out to him. There! A tiny bit of metal utterly inconsequential to all but Morgan brushed past the pick. He stopped, mechanical instinct in his brain moving the pick with microscopic precision. The pick touched the lever and moved around it, searching for the way in. Morgan was so involved, so invested in this technical dance, that he didn't notice his tongue was sticking out. His extended metal fingers located the edge and slipped in behind it. One more tug and he'd be inside. Morgan grinned. The door clunked with an echoing resonance as the final bolt thudded back into its groove. The Welshman wiped the sweat from his brow with a dirty sleeve and got to his feet joints cracking and complaining. Taking hold of the handle, he swung the door triumphantly back on its hinges to reveal the treasure that had drawn the crew of the Sea Witch to Santa Teresa. The Incan crown stood alone in the anteroom, glowing green and gold. Inset with flawless emeralds the size of a baby's fist. Intricate depictions of heathen rituals had been worked into the solid gold structure. To Morgan's experienced eye, 
It must have weighed more than ten pounds. The emeralds alone would buy each member of the crew a ship. Carter stormed past and scooped it up in one massive paw. Turning, he almost knocked Morgan over as he rushed for the window and grasped the rope that had been fed down the side of the building into the courtyard below. Englishmen and Spaniards were still fighting fiercely in a melee that resembled a Friday night brawl outside the cat and anchor. Stuffing the crown into a sack that he threw over his burly shoulder, the blond man clambered out of the window, raced his legs against the wall, and prepared to descend. Henderson waited his turn, eyes constantly flitting to the door that was starting to disintegrate under the ferocious battering of the conquistadors on the other side. Morgan knew that he would be the last man out. Carter and Henderson had been assigned to protect him, but now that the lock had been picked and the prize stolen, what worth did he have any longer? He stared forlornly at the empty space where the crown had stood. There wasn't even a doubloon keeping it company in there. It was the crown or nothing right now. And Morgan had nothing. Unless... As Carter started to climb down, Henderson, his long pockmarked face even more hideous in the gloom, holstered his pistol and drew his long black knife. He turned around to find Morgan and finish the task he planned with Carter the night before. The fewer hands in the treasure chest, the more those hands can hold, Carter had said while the two had kept third watch. No one will know how it happened, and no one will care to ask. But Morgan wasn't there. The picked door to the antechamber was closed again. Henderson was alone. At least until the heavy wooden door to the Don's office shattered inwards and a squad of heavily armed Spanish soldiers burst into the room. Henderson raised his knife to defend himself, but a volley of musket fire sent him crashing into the wall. Morgan stood panting in the pitch darkness of the antechamber. He'd shut himself in, praying that he would have time before Tom Carlos arrived with the key. Feeling with his calloused but nimble fingers, he sought out the carefully concealed lever he spotted behind the dais that had held the crown. Once it was found, he pulled gently, then with increasingly desperate force as it failed to budge. Suddenly, a heavy metallic thunk sounded, and a whoosh of salty air swept across his lean features. Lighting a flint and almost weeping with relief, he examined the escape tunnel created by Don Carlos in case of emergencies. It glowed with gold, silver, and jewels, bathing the thief in a warm and welcoming light. Grabbing as much as he dared and stashing it deep in his pockets, Morgan set off down the tunnel at a fast trot that soon developed into a full-on sprint. 
arriving at a gate that resembled a jail cell door. Morgan skidded to a halt and got out his tools once more. Compared to the device within the antechamber's door, this lock was child's play. And within moments he was dashing across the sand to where the survivors of Barrington's attack were retreating into the longboats. Morgan couldn't see Henderson, but he spotted Carter, still carrying the sack containing the crown. Saw him go down with a musket ball in his knee. The crown went flying from his grasp as the hulking sailor crashed onto the beach. Grinning malevolently, Morgan bounded towards him, kicking sand in Carter's face. He scooped up the sack and slung it over his back. (laughs) Bad luck, but... He laughed, dancing away as the wounded man blindly swung out. Morgan turned and raced for the boats. The men were already pushing them out to sea, and Morgan was lucky to get on to the last one. Barrington was standing at the helm, urging the men onwards, and when he saw Morgan panting in the prow, his bloodied face cracked in a wide smile. Welcome aboard, Master Morgan, he roared. I trust you have what we came for. As the men began to row back towards the ship, Morgan unveiled the prize to the privateer captain and grinned. Careful to keep his hidden gemstones from tinkling in his jacket. Thank you, Will. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars will return, ominously enough, on the 13th of October for our spooky Halloween-themed signs and omens. Submissions are closed, but maybe you'd like to try your hand at our Alice in Wonderland theme, Curiouser and Curiouser. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings of previous events, are on the Liars' website. No password required. And so our final story of the evening will be The Baggage Handlers by Jim Cogan read by Ray New As a freelance copywriter and corporate filmmaker Jim grapples on a daily basis with the big themes global skincare trends potato cultivation in Essex mailroom technology and risk mitigation policy He's also the go-to guy for making asset management software sound sexy. Ray appeared at the National Theatre in The Enchantment, directed by Paul Miller. Other work includes Breathe Block Park at the Liverpool Playhouse and Black Music Cab at the Lyric, Hammersmith. TV includes Murphy's Law, Eyes Down and Brookside. He appeared in Here Comes the Rattling Trees, a musical about Peckham at Tristan Bates Theatre in 2014. Ray! The Baggage Handlers by Jim Cogan. To reach me in my drunken slumber, 
Chisel's cries for help had to cut their way through a beautiful dream I was having. A dream, funnily enough, about Chisel in trouble. He, he, he might have been drowning or, um, or, or dangling from a cliff edge over croc-infested waters or dragged by his Chelsea scarf into the jaws of an industrial wood chipper. But whatever the details, I, I had a hard time convincing myself to wake up and help him. The moment I did, I regretted it. Light from the half-closed curtain stabbed at my eyes and the odour of fermented male innards assailed my nostrils. A lake of alcohol reeled and shuddered in my gut. From somewhere nearby came Chisel's muffled howls. I sat upright, still in last night's clothes, uh, my, my mind grabbing at wisps of the evaporating dream. There was a bowl of fruit on the console table, a gift from our Airbnb hostess. <laughs> the sight of those asphyxiating bananas turned my stomach even more. I, I threw a pair of boxes to cover them up. Help! Help! Chisel? Get me out of here! Out of where? I don't know! <laughs> where the hell are you? Oh, oh, fuck! Keep screaming, I called. I'll find you. <laughs> the last time I remember seeing him was around 3am when, when the four of us, minus Magnet, uh, had piled in from the nightclub, hammered to fuckery and beyond. <laughs> Muesli had stormed off to his room and Queequeg in hot pursuit to try and calm him down. Chisel made a beeline for his booze stash. He lobbed a can at me, a, a little harder than he had to, really, uh, and, and plonked himself down in the chair with a, with a hiss of his fingers. I nodded towards Muesli's room. That wasn't very nice. Fuck him, Chisel spat between gobs. This is our gentleman's retreat, our yearly ritual, a sacred tradition. He knows it's sacrilege to quiche out like that. You don't fuck with tradition, right? You don't fuck with friendship. I thought about what he'd done to Newsley in the pub and, and knew I ought to say something meaningful about fucking with friendship. Instead, I, I, I sipped my beer and shrugged. Shakespeare! I'm in here! All right, hang on. There weren't many places to look. Uh, in, in the corner of a room between, beneath a high, quaint Georgian window was a pile of suitcases, rigid, vintage-style trunks with reinforced corners and impregnable locks. Some small, 
some medium size and some really humongous. Uh, they were probably bought as a job lot at a brick-a-brack store. Our hostess made them into a feature, piling them in a rough pyramid, like, like something you'd see on a platform in the, in the golden age of steam. I rather liked it. Shakespeare! Shakespeare! Yeah, I, I think I found you. Hang on. There was no doubt about it. He was somewhere in that pile maybe even in one of the cases, uh, I started flinging the smaller ones aside. And even empty, they were heavy. I, I could hear movement in the adjacent room, muesli or, or queefweg, staggering about, scraping chairs and slamming doors. I, I heaved aside larger cases, wondering how any could be big enough to hold that hulking bastard. <laughs> I hadn't even begun to ask how he got himself in there in the first place. All the while, Chisel's cries got louder. Soon, the carpet behind me was a jumble of weather-stressed luggage. And at the bottom of the heap, I finally found it. A case the size of a small chest of drawers. Uh, it's hickory-hard exterior, glossy with age. A pennant shaped thicker for the 1906 St. Louis World's Fair plaster across the top of it. The case seemed to pulse and shake as, as if something inside were panicking. It was massive, yes, but chisel would still be folded like a parachute with barely room to breathe, let alone scratch those hard-to-reach bits. I pictured his big, bald head, his fleshy features, curled and helpless, like a 40-year-old fetus that had never breached. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, are you in there? The case began to move, ever so slightly. Fuck! Fuck, get me out! Get me out! Get me out! How'd you get in there? <laughs> He started bellowing louder. The suitcase shifted a full half centimetre towards me. I tried flipping the catches, but neither was budged. Not rusted. Locked. Okay, mate. Uh, I, I, I'm on it. Uh, Jesus, mate, what the fuck? Queequeg was standing in the doorway... Light from the hall, bouncing off his tattooed, riddled torso. Are you responsible for this? I demanded. Responsible for what? Someone locked chisel in the fucking suitcase. Who did? I've no idea. <coughs> locked! Shrieked chisel through the leather. What do you mean, Locked! <laughs> Queequeg and I shared a look. <laughs> but, no. We shook our heads in unison. Where's Magnet? Asked Queequeg. Pulled last night, didn't he? Jesus. What a twat. Said Queequeg. His eyes narrowed. So, when did this happen? I don't know, sometime in the night, I suppose. 
What? In here? Without you noticing a thing? That's right, fuckstick. Without me noticing a thing? I was shit-faced, remember? We all were. Okay, sorry. He sighed. How are we going to get him out? I don't know. Can't find the key. The leather's like mine, oh hind. Wait for it. Wait for it. <laughs> Don't worry, said Queequeg. I'll get me multi-tool. <laughs> yeah, you get your multi-tool. He ran off like a happy pup. I put on my trousers and went in search of Muesli, wondering whether Chisel might actually have locked himself inside the suitcase just to give Queequeg an excuse to use his precious multi-tool. <laughs> like he's that good a mate. In the kitchen, Muesli was already dressed, sitting Pilates straight at the table, tucking into well, his namesake. <laughs> he has this way of pivoting the spoon. Slender wrists glide in the spoon towards his mouth like a shuttle docking in a space station. He's the only one of us that has a full head of hair. Not one of them's grey. You've got to see this, I said. When we got to the bedroom, Queequeg had already harpooned himself several times in the hand each time with a different blade. <laughs> and Chisel was still in the case. The look on Muesli's face suggested total surprise. <laughs> was he even physically capable of stitching up a deadweight chisel? Possibly. If he was angry enough. And he had been. But, it's hardly how primary school teachers are meant to behave. <laughs> Queequeg held up a blood-smeared spike of metal. I made a breathing hole. <laughs> From inside the case came a noise like seawater being sucked into a cave. We looked at each other with puffy eyes and heads buzzed with booze and genuine confusion. The evening had escaped me shortly after sitting down with Chisel. And I couldn't remember going to bed. Queequeg and Muesli had probably carried on drinking side by side in their twin cots before passing out. Surely none of us were capable of this. And yet, any one of us could have done it. <laughs> the only one in the clear was Magnet. Listen, I whispered. Don't take this the wrong way, but... Why don't we just check our trousers? You know, to be on the safe side? Neither protested. Uh, we, we turned out our pockets and left them hanging there like, like elephants' ears as limp proof of our innocence. 
The front door opened and Magnet breezed in, smiling like he'd just had a spa treatment. Morning, chaps. Hello, Magnet. Spoken to Lucy this morning. He looked like I'd slapped him. Hey, what happens in Leamington Spa? Stays in Leamington Spa. <laughs> right? You're a twat. <laughs> I told him. He looked away and nodded with genuine remorse. To cheer him up, Newsley told him about Chiz. <laughs> so, what now, Shakespeare? said Queequeg. Get a locksmith? Pronto? Or maybe the fire brigade? We'll miss our train. <laughs> yeah, said Magnet. And the thing is, Lucy will be rather hurt if I'm late for this do at her parents. From inside the case came a high-pitched cackle. We dragged it out onto the landing and down a few stairs. Every jolt made chisel shriek. <laughs> In the end, we stood aside and amusedly rode the case from, from right the way down to the bottom in a single smooth run. Outside, it took me, Magnet, and the cab driver to lift Chisel into the boot. <laughs> At the station, we learned our train was delayed by 39 minutes. So, we found a nearby pub for some hair of the dog. What do you want, Chiz? We quite <laughs> asked the case. <laughs> His answer was a throttled gargle. I think you said pina colada, said Muesli. <laughs> and Queequeg returned with four beers and a pina colada, <laughs> which we called into Chess's drink breeding hall. We stared out the window at the world going by. I like Leamington Spa, said Magnet. I thought of the text Chisel had sent me when I'd confirmed the deal on Travel Zoo. You are a fuckwit. Lem Spa a shite hole. No nightlife. Spaz. <laughs> I thought of Magnet Stag do five years before. It had been old school, taking place a few days before the wedding. I remember Chizzer's insistence that Magnet bandage his head and put both arms in plaster to visit Lucy afterwards, and how Magnet really didn't want to. Chiz had shouted and hectored till he caved in and let Chiz truss him up in gauze and smear him in ketchup. Lucy had taken one look, then gone upstairs and slashed her wedding dress to ribbons. But last night, when Newsley refused to drink that seventh pint, all Chiz's endless, familiar bullying had proved fruitless. So he'd skulked off to the bar, getting deep in conversation with a group of unpleasant-looking guys. Sometime later, he'd reappeared at the head of this band of mercenaries who pinned Muesli down so that Chisel could straddle his chest and force a pint of something toxic down his throat. Meanwhile, Magnet, Queequeg and I 
had stood remonstrating weakly like the pussies we were. On the train back to London, we parked the case in the aisle, bought some cans from the buffet, and treated Chisel to several more drinks through his air hole. The bottom of the case looked darker now, and softer. None of us wanted to touch it. Occasionally I caught new urinous whiffs from the leather. I even thought I heard Chisel singing, but, but, but I can't really be sure. <laughs> Getting out of Marlborough, the trunk felt twice as heavy. We could barely budge it between us. Who's going to take him home? asked Queequeg. Magna tapped his watch. I'm already late. Me too, said Musley. I really don't fancy explaining this to Ronnie, said Queequeg. I thought of Veronica. Chisel's girlfriend of 18 months. Beautiful. Strong, no nonsense, and inexplicably crazy about him. I thought how much we all secretly fancied her and wondered what she saw in the guy. I pictured my wife and son waiting for me at home. Well, I said, there's always left luggage. (laughs) (laughs) The lady at the counter flared her nostrils at the sagging, festering trunk we bought and summoned the guy to take it away on a barrow. I handed the ticket to Magnet. It's on your way home. If you won't look him, at least drop this off with Ronnie. Probably best he doesn't spend another night in there. What would I tell her? You're the one who knows how to talk to women. What do you think of something? He gulped and nodded. I knew exactly what he'd do. He'd wrap it in a note, post it, ring the bell and run away. (laughs) Like a child. Which is what we all were. Thanks for a cracking weekend, chaps, said Queequeg as we parted on the pavement. Who's organising next year's? Chisel's turn, I reckon. (laughs) I'll second that. I'll drop him an email, I said. We shook hands and went our separate ways. Thank you, Ray. And that brings our show to an end. We hope you've enjoyed your enforced imprisonment. We've certainly enjoyed imprisoning you. If you find you're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, please don't worry. We'll be around for a little while longer so you can shower us with affection. And more importantly, your money. I can now tell you the secret of the lock that secures the doors. The key is noise. Lots of noise. So, for our authors, our actors, and for your own personal freedom, please make as much noise as you can. Good night.